From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Kate Massey hosting this afternoon with the whole crew. We have everybody in here on Zoom. Eric Bradlow is here. Audie Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. We're going to go uh, for the full two hours as usual. We're going to do one thing unusual today. We're going to begin the transition we've been talking about slowly, intermittently moving towards over the last few months away from leading with COVID coverage in the first quarter. We will do that as needed, but more generally, we're going to ask uh, other questions as well. We're going to ask what other statistical, statistically based issues are out there of broad public interest that we want to dig into. And sometimes it'll be straight up sports and sometimes it'll be COVID and sometimes it's going to be something else as it is today. We saw a paper come across this summer that caught our eye and it seemed like something that'd be good for us to chew on. So we're going to dive into that on this quarter. The paper is on the health consequences of drinking alcohol. And you know, uh, Katie, I mean, it's directly related to a sports show. <laughs> That's right. I mean, what could be, what could be more central, you know, more maybe other than quarterbacks, Alcohol is related to sports in many corners of the world, and there's been a lot of research on this topic, and it felt like here was some new research done perhaps more rigorously, more systematically, and it might even be overturning some of the understandings we've held for years about the health consequences of drinking, and so we thought we'd invite some of the, some of the research team on here to talk about it. We have Emanuela Gagiko, I'm sorry, Gakido. that's just write that down and then completely blow it. Gakidu, Gakidu, Emanuela Gakidu, Emanuela, thank you. Emanuela is professor of health metrics sciences and senior director of organizational development and training at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME at the University of Washington. You guys might recognize IHME. They were on the forefront of the COVID battle, especially early on. They were one of the first to be making forecasts about what was going to happen with COVID. Emmanuel is also a faculty affiliate for the Center for Statistics and the Social Sciences at the University of Washington. Emmanuel, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me today. Excited to talk about our work. Well, we want to hear about it, and, and, and there's a lot to dig into there. But first, give us a little sense. People may have heard of IHME, may not have. Um, but we certainly were talking a lot about the forecast early in the, in the, in the pandemic. And you guys were kind of a, a, a big group. It seemed like a, going about it a little bit differently. You were multidisciplinary. You're affiliated with the University of Washington. You're affiliated with the Gates Foundation in some way. Can you tell us just a little bit of background on IHME and were you involved with any of the COVID work? Yeah, absolutely happy to. So IHME, we just celebrated our 15th birthday. We've been at the University of Washington since 2007. And we are a group of quantitative analyst methodologists that work on health and we measure anything that kills you or makes you sick and what health systems can do to improve the health of their populations. So um, currently we have about 450 people on staff and we are part of the University of Washington. So we have faculty, students, a lot of researchers, we're very interdisciplinary. We're also from all over the world. So um, mm -hmm. it's a great um, organization to be a part of. We uh, had not traditionally worked ex 
extensively on infectious disease modeling, though we have some people with that background. But then when COVID hit, we might remember that Seattle was one of the first places mm-hmm. it popped up in the U.S. Um, and so we just got a team together that included mathematicians, statisticians, computer scientists, epidemiologists, and we started producing forecasts. Um, we were looking at health systems around the world. We were looking at cases, deaths, you know, eventually more information became available on testing um, and other dimensions of the pandemic. And we tried to keep current and keep our forecasts relevant as things were changing. So we rewrote our models. We <laughs> reframed everything we were doing a few times. And uh, we're actually still doing it just at lower frequency than we mm-hmm. were before. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I was uh, a part of the team. I still am. Um, it has become less of every day. At some point, it was mm-hmm. all we mm-hmm. did <laughs> every day. Um, and it was... Uh, our way to contribute our skills to the global pandemic and hopefully mm-hmm. help um, some of the planning and some of the mitigation efforts that were going on. Mm-hmm. Well, in early days, no one knew what was going to happen. You guys are one of the first to be making concerted effort, a really hard task. Um, and just hearing you talk about it, I'm having to suppress all kinds of follow-up questions because it'd be lovely <laughs> to hear you guys talk about what you learned and how you go about things differently in the future. And the dynamics of that are phenomenal to have to be creating that as you go. But that is not the task today. And we promised non-COVID topic. So we're going to do non-COVID topic. Let's talk about this paper. You guys published a paper in the Lancet this summer. Here's the title, people. Population level risk of alcohol consumption by amount, geography, age, sex, and year. A systematic analysis for the global burden of disease study 2020. So Let's. I want to hear a little bit about methodology, but let me tell you one of the reasons this jumped out. You know, this is almost an example of how hard it is to convey subtle research in mainstream media. The first thing I saw about this was a new finding: any alcohol is bad, and that was overturning years of conventional wisdom, which was something along the lines of you know a little bit of alcohol is probably good good for you, and too much is bad. And so it really goes flashy to see any alcohol is bad. You dig into the paper, it's like, well, you know, for some subset of people, that may be true. And but for, you know, globally, that's not necessarily true. So I'm just giving you a sense of what caught our eyes. It's that, you know, overly um, simplified mainstream media. But now we want to dig into the details of it. So, Emanuela, before we do methodology, what would you say the important, most important takeaway is if you had if you could have coached these mainstream media folks for better coverage of your article, what would you hope they say? That's a really good question because the uh, media frequently pick on a part of what you want to say that may not necessarily reflect it accurately. Um, I guess I would say that this message is very complex and part of why the media um, picked up on the younger age group should not be drinking parties because it was simple to communicate. But I think the main conclusion that came out of our paper is that the relationship between alcohol and health is complex and it varies across the life course. So the ideal amount that somebody um, should consider consuming 
varies by age and it also varies by where people live. And the reason that is true is because people are exposed to different diseases at different rates, depending on where they live. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately, there isn't a very simple message or easy way to summarize it. um, Mm -hmm. And we didn't want to simplify what is a very complex relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Manuel, let me ask you, um, one of the things we promised we were going to talk about COVID, but it relates in the following sense. We talked about what was the primary, I feel like, what had the largest effect size for COVID, and a lot of it had to do with age. What would you say in terms of rank order, like what's the largest effect size? Is it your age? Is it comorbidities? Is it geography? Is it gender? Of the things you studied, mm. which, you know, what's kind of the rank order of importance that would moderate the impact between alcohol consumption and let's call it bad outcomes? Yeah, that's a very good question. I would say it's age, but in the opposite direction from what it was for COVID. So for COVID, older was not good. um, And we saw a lot of increased risk. But for alcohol, the older you are, the greater the amount that you can drink without suffering any health loss. I knew it. Thank you. Let me ask you. Let me ask you a question. Is there a step? Does there happen to be a three of us on this call care about this? Does there happen to be a step function like at age fifty-five? <laughs> it's you will be happy to hear that it's not a step function, but it's a gradual monotonic increase. So you will be uh, reaping the benefits, hopefully, for many decades. Continually. That's that's interesting. So I, I want let's hear more about this effect because it is a one of the most pronounced effects in the paper. But before doing that, let's answer one of the questions Eric just posed, and that is sex. One of the main messages you guys have in this paper is that there aren't sex differences and that you are counseling public service announcements to forget about that nuance, if, if I'm reading this correctly, that you you know, broadly don't see big sex differences. And so we should get away from prescriptions around sex-based differences. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's actually something that was not picked up a lot. And I was surprised because that is partly overturning existing guidelines and very different from what we know. So we have not found that the risks to health vary significantly for men compared to women at the same level of consumption and um, keeping everything else the same. It does not mean that there couldn't be any differences. It just means based on the evidence we have available to date, we do not think that recommendations should vary by sex. Okay. Okay. Goodness. I'm going to hold off Adi for just a minute. Adi's dying to get in here and, and we're going to take a deeper turn when he gets in. But before we do that, let's understand your explanation for the age effect, because this is the most, you just named it as the biggest factor in the paper. And it is, it's striking and it's a happy, it's a happy thing for some of us and less happy for others. Now, Eric has a scientific basis for lecturing his boys as well, which is good. Um, but what, why is, what, what is behind this big age difference? So the main reason behind the age difference is what predominantly kills people and makes them sick at different ages varies widely. Um, so the, Conditions that people under the age of 40 are most likely to die from or be uh, get injured from are injuries, whether they're accidental or intentional. And so for the relationship between alcohol and all types of injuries, any consumption is bad. Then as you go more towards the age group, like 40 to 65, 
Um, that's an area where cancers start being more of a cause of death and illness and injuries start going down. And then when you go above age 65 is where we see ischemic heart disease, ischemic stroke, diabetes, really be predominant causes of disease and illness. And what's different about these causes is that small amounts of alcohol seem to have a protective effect against ischemic heart disease, ischemic stroke, and diabetes. And so in those age groups where those are really big causes of death and disease, we find that small amounts of alcohol actually improve health or lead to increased health. Um, and that's why it changes over the life course. So let's, let's, let's now, now Shane wants to get in. Shane, I got to hold you off on Audi for a second, but I got to, I just going to clarify what some of what you're saying here. One of the things I found most interesting in this paper was this, in this paper was this consider consideration of, of accident and what, a, and what, and of course that changes by age. And so if that's a major factor in alcohol related illness and death, then of course it's riskier for young folks. And I just didn't know that was in the model at all. Of course it's in the model. So that's one of the factors. The other factor you're saying is, well, there are some, diseases or illnesses or causes of death that are that alcohol provides some protection against. And so this is something that, you know, people kind of, you hear this on occasion, but we'd love to hear more detail. Like you named a few of them and why is that? And how much alcohol provides some protection before it goes, before it turns over and becomes worse. And once we get that, those are some of the main themes on the paper. Then we can dig into some of these follow-up questions. Great. Yeah. And I'll just say that I named all of the ones where alcohol has some beneficial effects. So they're a big cause of death, but they're not that many of them. But um, so give, give them to us. stroke and diabetes being the predominant ones where at low levels of consumption by low levels, I mean, somewhere between one, two, maybe up to three drinks per day. We see that people that consume those levels of alcohol have lower rates of death from those diseases compared to people that do not consume any alcohol. So the exact rate, I can't be specific because, you know, we have hundreds of studies and they don't agree with each other. But when you take the average relationship between all these studies, it's somewhere, I would say, you know, one, two, three drinks a day gives you some protective effect compared to not drinking at all. Okay. And for everything else, we study like cancers, injuries, everything else, tuberculosis, infectious diseases, consuming alcohol is associated with a higher risk of those health conditions. Okay. I want to, I want to say one thing uh, when you said, when you average these studies, of course, you're doing things far more sophisticated than simple averaging. You throw a, a lot around a lots of fancy terms in here. You guys are being very sophisticated about it. But there remain methodological questions. And I think Adi Weiner's probably got one or many right now. Adi. Yes. Uh, so I have a few questions methodologically that I'll try to start with the highest level and one that, say, my MBA students would immediately jump on, which is how are you disentangling selection bias and survival bias? I mean, this is a you're, you're speaking causally here. Uh, everyone cares causally. They don't care about correlational. But obviously, this is an observational study. And you, you, how, do you, how do you tell your tell all of us that? that maybe the people who drink only one or two drinks if they're older are the most sophisticated health conscious people around uh, and younger kids who don't drink at all are very different from those who drink a lot. Survival bias, there's all kinds of issues in, when you're dealing with this data. How do, we, how do I know that any of this is actually can be applied causally or, and, it, and it's not just an observation about the population? Yeah, that 
the we can talk about causality at length, but to give you a brief answer, we have carefully selected the studies that we are looking at to be high quality from an epidemiological perspective. And so um, some of the studies that we really believe in are cohort studies where you pick individuals when they're young, and then you follow them up for several decades, and then you see what happens. So you've been observing the same population as they age, you know, their patterns of drinking, you know, other behaviors, and then you can say, okay, those who drink compared to those who do not drink, or those who drink more compared to those who drink a little bit, what does their health look like? There are a lot of issues of reverse causality that go in with a lot of health conditions, um, there are people that consume alcohol, then they get sick, and then they stop drinking. So we have to take them out of the sample. Um, but there are a lot of different study designs that we consider, and we end up including the ones where these considerations that you're mentioning have been addressed. And so we have faith that what they're actually measuring is the difference in health between those who drink of it. Oh, okay, uh, wait, I just got to jump in here. How do they address this? It seems to me it's impossible. How do you address the idea that people who are drink less are fundamentally more health conscious? And I mean, maybe you, if you have covariates that you can you can assess that, then I, I'm willing to go to, to hear more. But w- like, what would those covariates be? Hold on, Adi, one second, just to clar- clarify your your hypothesis. You need it the other way around, right? This protective thing would require that those who drink a little bit, moderate amounts, are somehow also more health minded. Sure. So, so you drink nothing. So, so in the older there's, cause we actually have two results. Um, uh, there's this result that older people actually have a benefit from drinking only a little bit. So that those kinds That's of right. people are, are actually, I would, in my experience, I'm actually one of them. <laughs> I don't drink a lot, of, but I do drink a little, I'm in that one to two. Um, and I think that, that, uh, that just to generalize that my concern would be that those people are wealthier. They have, um, strong interest in their health in lots of domains. They exercise probably more. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that. Well, so I, what's the, hold on. I, I understand the selection concern in general, but I don't yeah. quite understand the intuition for why someone who drinks one or two drinks a night exercises more than someone who drinks none. Well, I, 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 think, I think maybe, maybe if we want to focus on a similar selection bias, let's focus on the young people because that, those are the ones where alcohol is shown to be detrimental yeah. But I think what uh, one of Audie's points, and it was kind of going to be my question as well, is that behaviorally, you know, young adults that drink, you know, drink are behaviorally very different than young adults that don't drink in a myriad of different ways that I don't think you would necessarily have covariates for in a study. So I don't know how you deconvolve, you know, I mean, the paper does this like really nice kind of framing of these, uh, what do you call it, the non, the non-drinking, non-drinker equivalents. I just don't know how you achieve an equivalence because a non-drinker is is fundamentally different from a drinker in 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 a myriad of ways that isn't just the fact that they don't drink alcohol yeah absolutely i agree with what uh you're saying and actually like in the field um the there's a big need for a randomized clinical trial because that would be one way to address it there was one that was designed it was funded And then it stopped because of a lot of pressures. The NIH was involved. um, The alcohol industry was also involved in that study. And then it got stopped before it really got launched. And that's a big shame because we do need that type of study to control for some of the 
issues that the longitudinal studies cannot fully account for. So, you know, my job is to take the totality of the evidence and based on what we know now, come up with the best conclusions. So, you know, whether it's an association or a causation, when you see such a massive effect, particularly among young people linking alcohol and injuries, uh, intentional, unintentional homicides, bar fights, what have you, it is. It would be from a public health perspective a lot better if we could either reduce alcohol consumption or avoid the risky behaviors. And we have seen interventions be very effective, like in Australia when they really cracked down on drunk driving, road traffic accidents went way down. So you know we do have evidence of causal association between alcohol and a lot of health outcomes. It does not meet the bar of a lot of people that work in the field of causal inference. Um, But in my opinion, from a public health perspective, we have sufficient information to make the recommendations. Let me me just quickly follow up. I don't disagree that there's a causal connection between drinking a lot and lots of bad stuff that particularly kids do. That's obvious. I think the issue has to do with the shape of that curve and particularly how that behaves close to zero. Um, And and the, and that's that's the question that I have. I remember some time ago the. Surgeon, Adi, what, do you, what do you mean by what do you mean by that? What uh, what so about close to zero? So here's the issue. One could easily argue that if you are quite um, limited and moderate in the amount of alcohol consumption that you do, that's really not any different from nothing, and that it's only when you achieve a certain amount, a volume of of alcohol. Uh, basis of it that that's when it becomes a problem yeah like are we just identifying moderate versus non-moderate behavior in young adults without being one proxy let let me clarify for our listeners what curve you're talking about this j curve which is kind of what we've been told for years and 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 this team pretty much wrote down exactly that now it varies by place in the world and lots of covariates but if you had a global curve it's this j curve where there's this initial dip where moderate that's consumption. for older people, correct, Emmanuel? That's that J curve is for older. That, well, glo- globally, it gets weighted. So, but you're right. So it it does. You don't get the protective at the younger. But in general, you've got this very low impact early, and then a steep increase with more extreme consumption. And Adi, you're saying maybe there's no dip there overall. Maybe it's just kind of low versus not low. Or Shane just said moderate versus not moderate. And we shouldn't fuss so much about the details at close to zero. Is that how, is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I think part, part of the headlines were that, and, and I just want to analogize when um, the Surgeon General decided to use the space on the alcohol bottle for a warning, they chose pregnant women shouldn't drink at all, like zero, nothing. And that was, and that got a lot of crap because I don't think that there was data that suggests that zero was really better than a little. And that a, ba- a lot is, is bad, but arguing that it's a continuous function that way at the same, you know, linear function or some sort of, um, I think it had a, a somewhat of a, a backdrop, um, I mean, backlash that how could really be, uh, um, be zero? Would I tell, I mean, we have, my kids are no longer teenagers anymore, but they're still in their 20s. Would I tell them that, that the only acceptable behavior is zero alcohol? Um, or is it really, should I be pushing on the idea that, don't drink a lot. That's the that's the real problem. Okay, let's let's let him. I want to respond, but I, I shouldn't respond. Emanuela, Emanuela. Yeah. Well, I think that the main thing to keep in mind is that part of all of this is because we, a lot of people don't really understand the background risks that they're exposed to. Right. So for my mother, you know, she 
is not at high risk of injuries. She is at high risk of ischemic heart disease, stroke, and those conditions. And so for somebody in her age group and her friends, drinking a small amount is probably going to be better for her than drinking zero. But for people at the younger age, uh, end of the age spectrum, because society has not been successful at preventing injuries and um, high-risk behavior, the recommendation for zero is not because if you consume any alcohol, the alcohol itself is going to harm you biologically or physiologically, but because young people that consume alcohol tend to engage in a lot of risky behaviors that then have other mm -hmm. really bad health outcomes uh, for them and society. Um, we don't actually really know if consuming alcohol at small amounts throughout your lifetime is what helps have that protective effect in older age groups or whether if you start drinking like at 70, you're still going to have the same effect. That's something that is not well known. But the recommendation for younger people is predominantly based because of their risky behaviors that they tend to engage in at much higher rates than older age groups. And, and, and let's just note that they, they may not be able to very successfully adopt a, a moderate drinking strategy. I mean, adults have a hard time adopting that and so much less kids. Emanuela, can you tell us a little bit more about the theoretical mechanisms for the protective qualities of alcohol against, again, ischemic heart disease, stroke, and what was the third? Diabetes. Okay. Uh, so uh, you, you said you don't know whether it builds up over a lifetime. So that calls into some question of what, what we know about the mechanism at all, but what is believed to be the mechanism? We, we, especially for these subtle effects, it would be helpful if we had a theory for it. I will start by saying that I am not a physician or a biologist. And so this is not uh, sure. my area of expertise is more the numbers in the analysis. And there are some people that contest that there is um, a biological, physiological protective effect of alcohol. Those that believe in it um, don't really fully understand the mechanism to the best of my knowledge, but we know that when you consume alcohol, enzymes in your liver behaves differently. And then we see physiological changes in people's blood vessels. Um, we see other changes to the body that could then be linked to protective mechanisms. But I would really uh, not want to say way more than that. Um, I'd prefer somebody who knows what they're talking about to speak to them. Okay. Well, these guys are asking questions about like what kind of alcohol is most protective, but we surely can't answer that question if we don't have the basic mechanism. Eric. I, I was just going to ask, um, is it, is there an increasing tolerance over time? At least that's the lore out there that, you know, if my body gets used to drinking one drink a day, then two drinks a day won't be as bad. Like, does it matter like the path to get to a certain number of drinks or is it just the absolute number or maybe it's the cumulative amount over some time period? What Do we know anything about that? Uh, we know that there are physiological differences that happen to regular drinkers. So the way your body metabolizes alcohol and what happens after that is different for somebody who drinks regularly compared to somebody who hasn't drunk before. But we don't know as much as we would like to know about all these mechanisms. All right. Well, listen, we should let Emanuela get back to her day job. Uh, this was terrifically interesting. I feel like we could keep it going for a little while. And Emanuela, you don't know of it. You played, uh, you're like the, the first person in this role for us. It's almost like a journal club for us to, to kick it around with a co-author or a workshop. And we appreciate your taking time away to do that with us. Great. Thank you for having me. You bet. Emanuela Gakido, 
She is a professor up there at the University of Washington and affiliated, works full-time with the IHME, which you might've heard as the pandemic really moved into the forefront of everyone's mind. They do work on health metrics of all kinds. The paper was this summer in the Lancet. We'll get it up on our website so you can take a look at it more closely. Emanuela Kakidu. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Money, but we still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. The whole crew is in here today via Zoom. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. Show will go up on Wednesday. You guys can reach out and join the conversation during the week. We'd love it. If you would, our handle on Twitter's at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and the world of analytics and occasionally the world of health. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a shout. You can also send us an email. We have a mailbag. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We read everything you send us and we'd love to hear from you. We get as much of it as we can on the air. All right, gentlemen, three quarters in front of us. We're going to do open topics for the next two, and then we're going to finish with an interview. Just a heads up, our interviews with the firefighting guys. We Third annual September conversation with the firefighting guys. Moneyball for fire is what that whole movement's called, literally. We're going to check in with them as the fire season hits its peak in the American Northwest. This quarter, whatever y'all want to talk about. I'm going to guess it's football, and by God, it better be football-related. What caught your eye around the weekend? Oh, Eric's like, no, man, Alcaraz, baby. No, we got to do football. Got to do football. What in the football world caught your eye this weekend? Come on, I want to hear about Texas, Alabama. That caught my eye. Didn't watch the game, but I, I did read about it. We oh, I, watched, I, I watched the game and my heart broke for you, Cade. My Thanks, heart Shane. Broke for you. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I did get some condolences um, as as was appropriate. Went, went to the game, had a ball. I have to admit, it was a it was a great experience. It, it, you know, it was heartbreaking, of course, but it was just fabulous sporting experience. 105,000 is record attendance at, at the stadium there. Um, and it was hopping. Texas football is not known for hopping atmosphere. And in years past, I mean, it was really laid back and people were late. And 11 a.m., the stadium was full and it was bouncing. It was a ball. Texas showed they belonged, at least for that day. We'll see if it lasts. Um, and then, of course, you know, lots of controversial stuff that I don't try not to dwell on. But it was it was it was a lot of fun. Eric, My, my only comment about that game was that um, when you're not the bet, let's assume that Texas isn't the better team. Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. No, no, you, not day in. I think we can safely right. assume that Texas right. is not the better team. All right. <laughs> right. <laughs> You've got to score touchdowns when you get opportunities. You know, when that game was going on, even though Texas was leading some of it, when they, when they, I think there were two possessions, they ended up with field goals rather than touchdowns. I'm like, oh, this is going to come back to haunt them. Yeah, totally. If they, they had, this was their chance to beat Alabama. And you know what? I said the same. There were a, a bunch of NFL games I said it about yesterday yeah. as well, on Sunday as well. Uh, but no, I mean, I think we have to downgrade that this is one of the great Alabama teams of all time. I'm not saying they're not going to be great, but I'm just saying they're not unbeatable. They're not unbeatable. There's lots well, clear, of clearly not. They could have been beaten by a no. Uh, but I just mean it does. It's not just Texas. There's yeah. probably ten to fifteen teams 
that have a good chance to beat, not a good chance, at least more than somewhere 25 percent to beat Alabama. And so it would not surprise me if Alabama loses uh, during the season. And they're, I think I'd be interested to see how Massey Peabody and other models have changed the probability that Alabama makes it to the final four. But yeah, even we, the great teams a- of like Alabama teams the last 10 years have had close games, you know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, like, is, is, is this like a, a surprising enough result? I mean, I realize Texas is not yes. quite at the level of some of, you know, I guess, uh, you know, the Clemson's or Georgia's that have given Alabama uh, trouble in the last couple right. of years. Right. But I mean, I still feel like, you know, a close game early in the season is not necessarily indicative that this is not one of those kind of great Alabama teams that will probably roll for most of the season. That's, that's, that's fair reaction to Eric. Eric is, Eric is selling and, and you, and certainly, I mean, they, they had a close game against Florida last year. They barely beat Florida and Florida was, you know, they're they're probably not any better than Texas is this year. And they went on to have a great team. Let's be clear on what I'm selling. I'm, I'm selling the, the fact that Alabama is this unbeatable team. That's a certain lock for the top four. That's yeah. what I'm selling. And because yeah, yeah. I could easily see them getting beaten. I actually thought if you just watch the game objectively, I had no horse in the race, except for my friend Cade was there. I thought Texas was the better team. I thought yeah, Texas it, should have won that game, not could have won. They should have won that game. Yeah. They were the better team in that game. It felt that way. Of course, Alabama moved the field pretty quickly the last two drives, and that probably put them over the over the top. Conley's numbers showed that they deserved to win, but up for those last two drives. And, you know, some pretty miraculous uh, Houdini act by Young on, at the end of that second one. But, um, you know, across college football. Yeah, let's talk about two upsets, massive upsets that did actually happen. I mean, when it was Marshall, right, that beat Notre Dame, Notre Dame. yeah, and then and then App State, Appalachian State beat Texas A and M. I mean, yeah. those were. I, by the way, I don't know that those were bigger upsets in the sense of versus the spread because uh, Texas was favored by a little over twenty. They won by one, so that was like twenty nineteen points opposite the spread. I don't know that App State and Marshall were that different. Maybe they were in the low twenties. It turned out the difference. But all three of those games where this gets to Shane's point were essentially three touchdown differences than the spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it probably takes, I mean, in all likelihood, A&M is not going to go undefeated. And so, and well, here's the thing. <laughs> it, this is one of those years and people have said it early on where you, we've, you don't know we've never had a two loss team in the college football playoff. I mean, in the eight years or whatever we've had, it's yet to happen. This year seems like a pretty good bet even before the year started and a couple of weeks in, it seems even more likely. I was going to say A&M is going to be eliminated from consideration because they've lost and they're surely going to lose again in SEC play. But two losses might not take a team out this year. And, and, and that statement's kind of based more on kind of how the conferences are now structured less than not really, you know, kind of a, you're, you're not really making an expression that there's even greater parity kind no, of. No, I am actually. Like there, there, oh, okay. There's no restructuring of any significance yet. I think maybe the PAC 10's not playing, the PAC 12's not playing divisions. Maybe that's already in place. And so that restructuring, but otherwise it's just about there being, no obvious fourth team. So three teams that we, we went through this early on. We don't think all three teams are going to make it through necessarily, but they're the next set of contenders. It just feels like people are going to be knocking each other out. Right. And left. There's and, no, and there's no started. doubt that th- yeah, there's no doubt though, that this raises the probability of, you know, a non power five team making it. And Eric, in- but you got to have a non power five team that's going to step up. And that's app. States already lost. Houston's already lost. Cincinnati's already lost. 
the obvious contenders have already taken hit. UTSA has already lost. So they're, they're, there's not an obvious team to do that. That's absolutely fair. Yep, that's fair. Um, I just want to say that that, I mean, you know, college football is fun, but every now and then you get these days, maybe once a season, you get these days that are just, just remarkable. And, and this was one of those. It's often not the day that it looks like it's going to be ahead of time. This was a, a weekend that the schedule looked a little light. And then the way it unfolded, even the way it unfolded was remarkable because if you had eight amazing games, they happen to be end to end to end to end to end. And so you just kind of got strung along. I, I mean, I, I went home after this game. We, we got some eats and drinks, and then I got home, and I thought, I'm just going to you know, watch a little bit of football and then do something else. And I watch football for like the next eight hours. It was so absurd. Kate, let me ask you a question that builds on Shane's earlier point. Um, have you guys looked at how much the variation against the spread, for example, varies as the season goes on? Because Shane brought up a good point about this being early season. We saw something the following day in the NFL, these, you know, supposedly massive upsets. Maybe there's just a lot more variance early on in the season. So I'm wondering whether it's in Massey Peabody or the Sims you guys are doing with Unabated. Does anybody take into account kind of the, you know, um, the uncertainty with which we have strength parameters and therefore there's greater uncertainty early on in the season? It's a very reasonable hypothesis. We, I, we haven't looked at it that I know of. Um, the lines are, I bet the lines are bigger early this season because you have more of these um, non-conference games, in fact, more P5, G5 matchups, which are going to artificially inflate the variance of the era, presumably. But uh, maybe there's some way to control for that. It's an interesting question. It certainly feels like the, I mean, the models must have more uncertainty early in the year. That kind of has to be the case. They certainly move around more. We've definitely looked at that in the past. Let's, and Let's just be clear. Just one clarification. Any model that isn't fully Bayesian, meaning you're sticking in point estimates of the strength parameters, this is exactly the risk of doing that because mm-hmm. those have greater uncertainty potentially early on in the season. So mm-hmm. if, if, it, if, a, if a model is just based on point estimates, like how good is Alabama, how good is uh, you know Texas, then you won't incorporate this into the model. Let me, let me try to make it more concrete. Uh, in college football, the the for the error in the or the variance of standard deviation of the final difference in the scores is at least 13 or 14 points so a 21 point line like in texas alabama should be it's about less than a, that's about one and a half standard deviation so the upset there would be something in the neighborhood of six percent and now you throw in uncertainty in the line that can of course go either way but the way the way that overestimates uh or uh uh, Alabama or underestimates Texas or any underdog combination probably matters a little bit more. So, I, I mean, in a, in a big opening weekend where you got lots of games, you should see a few, at least one or two big upsets. Yeah. It shouldn't be out of the, out of I, question. I, I mean, right. Well, this I, is, I, I this is one of the, this is one of the great things about college football. There's just more games. And so yeah. as long as you can channel surf, as long as we can choose what we're paying attention to, you're going to find more excitement any given weekend than you will in, a, in an NFL slate that has, you know, at most 16. And I just want to point out, I just kind of echo your point, Kay, that like, you know, unfortunately, we have two opposing points here. We have greater uncertainty at the start of the season and say the underlying team abilities. Um, but we also have kind of like a scheduling where most of the kind of competitive games are kind of backloaded in the season. Yeah. And so even though you have more uncertainty in the lines early on, you also just have more That's kind right. of almost artificially large lines early on because yeah. – 
there's more kind of like non-competitive games scheduled earlier in the season. Well, you know, it's beginning to sound like it's beginning to sound like March Madness where those first couple of rounds are the real exciting rounds because there's more games. And then Mm -hmm. you have the chance of these huge upsets. You just don't have as much chances later on. So early season college football is a little bit like we, you know, the first two rounds of the NCAA basketball. Also, if I've learned anything from you, Kay, there's a lot more learning across the season. I don't mean by the statisticians learning about the teams. The team's actually changing. They get better, right? They they really do get better. I don't think, I mean, how would you compare that to an NFL season? Probably a lot more. There's, there is definitely more uh, forgetting in the, in, in the foot, in the college football model than there is in the NFL model. So the, it's less stationary. The optimal decay rate is higher in college football than f- professional football, precisely for that reason. There's just more development over the course of the season. The only two extra comments I was going to make just looking at here is that Alabama only dropped one spot, which I always find interesting. Um, you know, obviously that means the priors on them going into that game were much higher because you could argue why shouldn't Ohio State pass them, for example, you could argue. Um, I also also always like to see in the season, what's the highest ranked team with at least one loss? So right now, Utah is number 14 mm-hmm. with one loss. Mm-hmm. And so to me, you know, their national championship dreams, if they had any, which they did at the beginning of the season. Sure, they're still alive. I mean, they win the rest of their games. They're going to the playoff. I mean, there's no reason to believe they wouldn't or at least wouldn't have the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really early to be talking about uh, any real implications, because especially if two losses are on the table, really any team's still in it. And if it's just going to be if everybody's just going to take everybody out, then even the Utah, you know, Utah lost that first week. But maybe there's plenty of time. I want to make one other observation. We had an economist from Stanford on here a few weeks ago, Paul Oyer, personnel economist, no less. And he has a new book out. We talked about, you know, here, here, Paul, give us some econ takes on some of these questions. And one of them was in college football with the portal. What will be the impact on the competitive balance in college football with people moving more freely? And I was hypothesizing that, you know, better players will accumulate on better teams and, you just kind of get more consolidation, but for NIL pushing back the other way. But even just that transfer point, Paul pushed back and said it wasn't obvious because, you know, better players from the good teams drop down. Better players who are sitting and not getting playing time drop down, and the G5s of the world or the low P5s of the world actually get stronger. And if that's true, if there's just more efficient allocation of players where they're going to get more playing time, you might just see elevated play everywhere so it's not obvious what happens to competitive balance i just want to observe that the starting quarterback for georgia southern the team that went in and ended scott Frost's career as head coach at nebraska is a transfer and it's, i mean he came from buffalo and so i'm not sure really what direction that is from buffalo to georgia southern but it's certainly not one of these high profile p5 moving up moves it's it's going to be interesting to see the role and the increased efficiency from an economic sense of players going places where they can play more, whether it's moving up or moving down. And it's especially going to be interesting to see if these G5 upsets tick up in frequency. We saw three big Sunbelt upsets on Saturday. We don't want to overreact, but it would be neat. It would be neat if one of the consequences of the increased portal activity is that there's just a a higher level play kind of throughout. Well, speaking of increase, we also see now in college football, of course, the playoff expansion. And so one of the things that's interesting is, you know, in three years when we're still on the air here at Wharton Moneyball, if one of these teams lost, 
you know, I'm not sure we'd be talking about it as much. We're like, yeah, well, they're still going to be in the top 12 or, you know, who cares? You know, not that it, the seeding won't matter because it does matter. Getting a buy matters, getting home field matters, all of that kind of stuff. But I don't think there would be as much urgency or as much, you know, implications of this. And I think it's fair to say I've been a big proponent of playoff expansion, but I will say it would make my excitement about every small upset less concerning. So I, I understand that. And certainly the sanctity of the regular season has been an argument for a while. I, I do get that. I think it's fair. I want to push one thing that goes in the other direction. And that is the, the construct for the, for the 12 team playoff is that the top six conference champions get in. And that means that's going to bring value back to conference championships that hasn't existed at all since we, since we've gone away from, you know, you know, the AP deciding who's going to be the national champion. I mean, we used to care about who won the Southwest conference or the big eight or whatever, and you kind of don't care so much anymore, but this is going to make that matter a lot. So in that sense, it's neat and that it kind of resurrects the conference level stuff. Remember it's a top. So by, by saying the top six, that means presumably the top, the D five power five conferences and the best of the G five conference leaders. And so those guys are going to be playing for, a, a spot, a, a, a guaranteed spot. The, the, then there's another six, another six open spots. Um, said, all right, guys. Said, oh, sorry. Which you've said a number of times, Cade, which is what's the purpose of the contest? If the purpose of the contest is design of the competition, or in this case, the playoff is to help identify the best team. This will provide that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in the current format, you know, maybe we get the best of both, best of both worlds because it, it still renders meaning at a, at a broad set of teams. You have 130, you know, D1 teams or FBS teams. It'd be nice to keep them involved as long as possible. Um, all right, guys, we've got some time left this quarter. Let's hear about you know, y'all are a little bit more on the professional side of things. Even Audie Weiner woke up Sunday morning excited about watching some football. Um, then he had to watch the Jets, unfortunately, immediately. Uh, yeah, that was, an, that was that wasn't good. The but, Flacco revenge game didn't go quite as well as I know, but I did enjoy watching the Eagles. That was that's my adopted home team. Let me before I, we leave the Jets too quickly. I, I've only saw one number here, but I, I and the the Ravens didn't seem great in what I saw, and then the numbers do not look good. I mean, their efficiency was not good. A lot of third and longs. They didn't. They did a lot of series that didn't that ended up in punts. It's really disappointing. Do I have any? Any reason to, to the Jets believe have that a the pretty Jets good defense? defense? This is, I guess, my the question. The Jets do have a pretty good defense. Yeah. I mean, they're, they've got no quarterback, basically. They might, you know, uh, but they, they do have a pretty good defense. So, I mean, I, I think that's that's one thing to, that, that I think, okay. you know, as a Ravens fan, you can kind of take. I mean, at being, a, you know, the Jets being at all competitive is not something you can ever really kind of feel great about. Right. against your team but all right well let's not dwell too much on the new york jets what were the top stories that caught your eye in on the sorry odd in the nfl well well i mean the one last night that i i mean i i don't know about you guys whether you watched the monday night game but i thought the end of the game was super interesting from a kind of strategic choice point of view very controversial yeah. that you know the denver uh coach basically decided to instead of going for it on the, the choice was basically between kicking a 64 yard field goal which is i think would the second longest like distance uh, on, on record versus going for it on a fourth and five. And neither are high probability moves, well, but I got to imagine that going for no, it on fourth, fourth and five, five is oh, no. Fourth and no. five's got to be at least 40%. Yeah, Adi, just to give you guys the numbers, I looked at the win probability by going for it versus um, by kicking the field goal. Yeah. 
if Denver had gone for it, they had a 34% chance to win the football game. By not going for it, he had, they had a 7% chance to make the field goal. So he gave up 27% in win probability by going for that 64-yard field goal. So yeah. some, of the de- some of the details matter there, Eric. Um, I can believe it was a bad call, but some of the details people talked about is, one, when was that calculated, before they let the clock run down or, or not? Before. So well, I mean, great- he obviously, to, to even let the clock run down, because he had timeouts. Three yeah, of so them. he had made that he had made that decision to go for that field goal with okay. like a minute left or something That's like right. that. Must That's have, right. or else, or else, or else, it's even less explicable that he would let the, the call off, clock rain down. Well, the other question is, where does your probability of success with the field goal come from? Whenever we don't observe very many sixty-plus yard field goals attempted, and when we do see them attempted, they're by the very best kickers. Mm-hmm. So, where does our model come from on the probability? Guys, I mean, we're, we're <laughs> noting McManus is one of the best kickers, but fine. I still think hmm? fine, fine, fine. But I think actually it's an interesting question. Yeah. So you, you stats guys who get called in to do litigation consulting sometime, imagine building the model for the true probability for the average NFL kicker when you just don't observe average NFL kickers try 64-yard field goals. Well, I wouldn't – I mean, let me just throw, I, it's, what's worse about it is that the typical way you try to do this is by borrowing strength, by finding a, a decent, a really good model in, in the places where you have a lot of data and just sort of extrapolating it out to the edge. But it, but there's almost, I feel like there's a, uh, there's a cliff that happens. You know, uh, most NFL kickers can handle 54, 55 yards, but 60 yeah. is five yards, but it might as well be, you know, it might as well be a coast to coast. It's not a linear extrapolation. If I had to bound it, I would take as the lower bound the average NFL kicker because Brandon McManus is higher than average. Yep, and I would yep, take yep. the upper bound, what Justin Tucker does. Okay. But then I how mean, do you even get the average lower bound if you can't extrapolate to a distance that you never observe? You don't see average kickers trying 64-yard field. Well, I mean, you don't, it's not completely unheard of. You do have some. You would have to borrow strength across, you know. Years. A lot, you have to do years. A lot of years. Okay. You know? What would you do with uh, – I mean, can you do anything with practice kicking? Do you have any, any data that, that you think that matters? I mean, McManus, I think, had quite a few practice kicks of that length, but nothing anywhere close to that in the game. I don't think he's been well, – That's why – by the way, Adi, that's why the coach Hackett said that he tried it because he actually tried it in practice, a bunch of kicks from 60-plus. Uh, they said he was making about 50% of them. That's what I read after the game, of course. Mm-hmm. That's what they said. Um, and so, but you're right. You're going to have to build some sort of curve and extrapolate out from there. And so either way, whether it's exactly 27% win probability given up, I don't know, but it was the strangest call I had ever seen. I just could not believe it when they were letting the clock run down. I'm like, he's going to let him go out there and kick this 64 yarder. And that seems strange. So guys, how do we keep from overreacting to the performances we saw one week? We know better than to react to one week, but my gosh, it's impossible not to react, especially because we had some really extreme performances, both high and low yesterday or Thursday through Monday. I think there's two, two types of people. Okay. Just quickly. One is uh, guys that have never been good, who continue to show they're not good versus guys that we know are good, who maybe had a slightly (laughs) off week. Like, if you're telling me, is Russell Wilson still good? He did not have a good game. Geno Smith was the better quarterback in that game. But I still believe Russell Wilson's a very good quarterback. But if you're asking me, how about Trey Lance? I don't know. He looked bad last season. He still looks bad. Oh, well, I mean, that, that game especially was in like a monsoon. I, that, that's the type of game where I completely throw out anything that happened. Wow. Right. I mean, I mean, okay. I mean, it was like, you know, it's it was, yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you, it still counts in the standings. But as far as like <laughs> a, like, you know, diagnostic on somebody's ability, I mean, 
Well, what about what, what about Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers just laying an egg in Minnesota? Yeah, I mean that. I mean they did that last year too. So I mean, and then he went on to have an MVP season. Just to point that out, for example. Okay, he so laid this, an egg in that first game last. So well. so can we? We can't infer anything. It's just it's just noise and, and our little lizard yeah, minds. You have can to infer to one seventeenth. I'd say that he's he's he's. I would just I would lower his stock, just not by that much. Yeah. I mean, we, we have theoretical reasons for thinking their offense might struggle. They don't have the receiver core they had before, for example. But Minnesota, flip it around. Is Minnesota good? I mean, Eric saw the Bucks. Like, you know, Mike Evans back healthy. My gosh, that looked like fun, right? So, and then the Cowboys just looked disastrously bad and had an injury on top of it. So, the whole game of what you react to and what you don't react to after one week, is even after two, is a, is a big challenge. We got, we got Eagles-Vikings this week, so that should be fun. Oh, that is fun. Very good. All right, guys, that has been two quarters here on Wharton Moneyball. We have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, second half. Second half of Wharton Moneyball. We've got another open topic segment in Q3. We have another interview. In Q4, guys, it's one of our favorite interviews any given year. I think he's. I think they're sneaking up on a. I think they're sneaking up on the Kentucky Derby interview as a favorite. It was like a literally the the Moneyball for Fire guys, the guys out in Missoula and Fort Collins, maybe is the other one, Colorado. We talk to them each September about how they're using analytics and firefighting effort. We've got that coming up in Q4. All right, I mean, this, it's my it's my second favorite topic we ever cover on the show. Competitive eating, of course, being the first. Oh my god, but, like, but, Shane, you're killing me. You're killing <laughs> thank me. Thank you. But you're also the you're the anti horse guy, Shane, and so you're, That's true. you're That's you know true. you don't okay, give, it's a handicap is down 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 my yes, personal down, rankings down but, you know. list. Well, you know we've we've managed to pull Adi into professional football. Maybe we yet maybe yet we can pull you into. Oh, there's hope. There's race. always hope. Um, gentlemen, we've talked about football in Q2. Maybe there's a few other sports to talk about in Q3. In particular, the new kid. In town, the 19-year-old number one in the world, the youngest, is it right? And the youngest number one ever, and Grand Slam winner Alcaraz in the US Open. The it, you know, I, I only saw highlights, I saw maybe 15 minutes worth of highlights, which were spectacular. Was the match as much fun as it looked? Yeah, I mean, I saw almost all of every match. So I watched him. Oh, play. come on. He had a five hour match. He had like the second longest match in the history of the tournament. Oh, I know. I watched his match against. Sinner. It was over I at 255 wa- in the morning. I, I watched a lot of that match. <laughs> okay. I watched right. also, I watched the match against uh, Tiapo, which was yeah. also a great yeah, match. And then, right. of course, I watched the entire match against Rude in the finals. But here's the thing I think people forget. Look, he won the tournament. He deserved to win. No doubt about it. Well, let's be clear. He was down a match point against Sinner, could easily have lost that match. Against Rude in the finals, well, he won three to one. Yeah, except how about when it was one set all and Rude had set point in set three? That would have been two sets to one for him. Of course, the match against Tiapo went five sets, and that was nip and tuck the entire way. So all I'm commenting on is Alcaraz, He's an absolutely deserving champion, but let's not make it seem like he didn't have rough bumps along the way. And let's not also preordain him as yet. If you're telling me he's at full strength and Djokovic is at full strength and he's at full strength or Nadal's at full strength, 
I still would take Djokovic or Nadal over Alcaraz right now, but I st- he's definitely, he and Sinner to me and Rude have passed now in my mind. They've passed Sitsipas, Zverev. I would put Medvedev maybe in about that tier with them, but I'm going to, yeah, I think it's great. It's a great time in tennis right now, but I still Eric, think Nadal and Djokovic are still at the top. Well, I want to take your your point just a moment about that he wasn't that dominating. And it's 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 one of these things that there could be a metric for how dominating a, a tournament championship was. Yeah, I mean, a guy, I guess was. like, you know, what I was sort of thinking, you know, just kind of watching his kind of path through the through the tournament is, you know, what's the distribution of the number of games played by the eventual champion, basically? Good. You know, because I you know mean, what, he, right. he went to basically five sets in almost every single. He went in. He went in three straight matches, and that had never happened before. Right. So well, I mean, Shane, Shane's just given us a super easy heuristic: just number yeah. of games played over the six matches or whatever it is. That'd be a a great simple way to <laughs> yeah. capture it. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, I, I think the... I think I think of all champions, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this analysis for next week's show. I would say he played the most games of any champion. Certainly Jeez. in recent memory, perhaps there's something way back in the day, but it would be cool to see. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that analysis. Eric, what is it that gets better in a tennis player as they get older? So people are, you know, we, we talked we, we talked with Coach Macy just a few weeks ago, and he was all about Alcaraz. And, and you know, people have been talking about him all summer. Maybe, you know, the Cognizant I've been probably talking about him for a year. But I even I've been hearing about him for the summer. Okay, so it's all about potential. He's actually begun to reach his potential but now you say look you put him up full strength against Djokovic or Nadal I don't know what is it like literally if we could measure it what differences would we see in this kid who's going to be phenomenal but he's only 19 so his game's not fully evolved what does it mean to be more fully evolved in what way is Nadal's game better oh a couple things one is uh this is known you know what when is the peak physical performance of a male athlete uh, it's interesting for a female athlete. It's somewhere in the 18 to 21 range for male oh, yeah. athletes. It's across later. all sports. In terms of in ter- no, not across all sports in tennis, in tennis, okay, say- good. in tennis, but I'm saying, so like, for example, when you look at the ELO ratings, which are, you know, the latent strength parameter ratings of tennis players, the males, when you see, they, they, you can go on to, I forget the name of the website. We've said it before. You can go on there and see, Nadal's peak age 25, Djokovic's peak age 25, yep. Federer's peak age 25. So, but for women, it's usually okay. 18 to 21. Good. Good. Okay. I buy that. Fine. And now I'm asking why? Like, what is it that's different? I was going to give you two dimensions, but there may be more. Uh, he will get stronger. You're not your, your physical strength highest at age 19. He will get faster. Those things are sure beyond age 19. And I would also imagine that he may add more just literally shot selection. I mean, you can only practice so many different shots. And so I would imagine just, you know, when is he, how long has he been a professional? Less than two years, really a top level professional. So my guess is he can work on the weaknesses of his game, but I would think strength, speed, those things can absolutely improve and maybe even and stamina. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the kind of mental evolution. I mean, not just for him, but for professional athletes, especially in these kind of solo sports where it's really just kind of, 
you know, you're out there like golf is another example of like how much, how much, you know, I mean, as, as you gain, you know, kind of keep playing and gain experience, you're gaining both kind of negative and positive sort of experiences and where, how do those balance? Like, is it, is it the accumulate, you know, we've seen golfers or tennis players, you know, kind of weighed down by the accumulation of negative experiences, but also, you know, obviously you can be further kind of inspired in your own ability by the accumulation of positive kind of experiences. So that that's, I mean, it's a lot more less tangible than some of these other things you're talking about, but it's kind of a fascinating kind of part of aging to me. I say, I love the question. I think it's fantastic. And, um, you know, in golf, famously, yips are something that comes up later in the career. And then, and you do see guys, I mean, it felt like Jordan Spieth felt bulletproof because, in fact, up to that point, he had been bulletproof until he, put he was one a in little drink. bit too bulletproof early on and didn't accumulate, you know, the, those, na- you know, kind of more recent negative experiences had a bigger impact on him. Maybe so. Than a Maybe so. Golfer. I don't know. Why in tennis, by the way, building on what you said, Shane, one of the guys I've always admired is Yvonne Lendl. You know, in tennis, he won eight majors. But just to be clear, he lost his first four major finals. He lost six of his first seven. And then he managed to kind of turn it around and win four of his next five. So I'm just saying, you talk about negative experiences. Like That was my worry, by the way, about Casper Ruud. So by the way, Casper Ruud played in two finals this year. People forget that. He was in the French Open final, got blown out, though, by Nadal. He was in the now, obviously, the U.S. Open final. He's now 0-2 in major finals. So, mm-hmm. obviously, I don't think any of us is worried about 0-2. But if it gets to 0-4, 0-5, then you start to say to yourself, this could get to a situation where he may have trouble finishing and winning these major finals. How old is Rude, by the way? He's young. He's 23. So, okay. we have another. And Sinner, by the way, I think is 20 or 21. So Sinner's the another- one he went. Sinner's the one that Alcaraz went five hours with right he went five at five hours and 30 minutes with Sinner had a match point in the fourth set and I think when we heard uh Rick Macy talk about it um he already acknowledged Alcaraz and Sinner are the two best young players he's seen by a wide margin and those were the two he identified as the future champions in our sport well Eric you know you we, we talk about aging on the show and we've we've talked about you know sometimes the guys just drop off. And what looks like a gradual age curve is an average, but the individuals, it tends to be a a cliff when individuals hit it. Is it the case? Might it be the case that the, that the dominance of the big three were now at some kind of cliff? Definitely. I mean, Roger Federer, I mean, can't even get back on the court right now. Really? He's, he's let's, he's done. I mean, he's going to be, he's 41. He's had two knee surgeries. He's possibly going to play in the labor cup, but Federer is done. Now, in terms of Nadal and Djokovic, uh, let's remember, up until losing in the fourth round, I think it was, of the U.S. Open, Nadal was undefeated in majors this year. He won the Australian. He won the French. He was in the semifinals of Wimbledon. He had a default against Kyrgios because of of his abdominal muscle injury. He was undefeated in majors. So it's hard to see any data to suggest that he's falling off or anywhere. He's not as good as the old Nadal, but he's still better than everyone else. And, you know, last year, Djokovic was one match away from winning the Grand Slam. So I don't see it. I, I think in their cases, I think there'll be a more gradual decline than this falling off a cliff. But I right now, if you told me Alcaraz or Sinner was going to play Nadal or Djokovic in a major tournament, I would absolutely give him a chance. And one of the things I talked about, you remember, on last week's show is 
Djokovic is going to suffer from something that he's not used to. He may be the 20 seed at the Australian mm-hmm. Open this year. And so because he's, he's losing the, points because he's not been participating. Correct. Remember the previous year, he won three majors and went to the final of the other. So he could be in real trouble. He's going to have much tougher matches in the early rounds. And that's going to absolutely have a big impact on an older player. It's no longer Djokovic is playing me and you the first four rounds. He's going to play a seated player in rounds two, three, four, et cetera now. And I think that's going to have a huge impact, which Nadal will not suffer from because Nadal's up there in the rankings. Okay. Except so- that again, I, I think to the extent that there's any kind of cliff discussion with Nadal, it's about injury, right? So, I right. mean, you know, that that's that's the pattern we're seeing accumulating. The only thing that is slowing Good. that right. guy down is the accumulation of injuries, which is kind of what slows a lot of people, elite players in sports, at, you know, at advanced ages down. All right, guys, we have uh, we have a new intern on board. Thomas Wright joined us effectively this week, talked his way into the program uh, early in the fall here. And Thomas asked a very good question, one I'm sure Eric hasn't thought about at all. But uh, and that is, OK, maybe a little early, but let's go ahead and try to forecast the number of Grand Slams by Alcaraz, career Grand Slams by Alcaraz. I'd like to hear you all just talk through this. How could we, if you had to put some money right now, one in the bank, but you had to bet on a career number here, how would you think about coming up with that? Well, I, uh, the first way I would think about it is I'd have to think about who else in his generation. Because remember, it's not going to be Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. They're going to be gone. So the question is, is he in a weaker period where he may not be playing great players? And that would be an opportunity. The second is, like, is he going to have a better career then two guys with three majors, which were Stan Marinka and Andy Murray, they had three. It may be. Okay, I'll say yes to that. Is he going to have a better year than a better career than John McEnroe, Yvonne Lendl, Jimmy Connors? They were in the seven slash eight range. So if the upper bound, the upper bound, any reasonable forecast would have would be that. You can't, <laughs> you can't forecast him as beyond Bjorn Borg at 11, Pete well, Sampras Eric, at 14. Well, Eric, hold on. What about the world is different now? Those guys, we've talked about it a lot, they had shorter careers. The load was just heavier. Now these guys are able to nurse themselves out into the 40s. Uh, they'll be, but the competition out. will be nursing themselves. So, I, I mean, I, I, I could go I and be convinced either way because the competition that he's going to be facing is going to be kind of a... Well, you know, John, also- if you gave John Macro another... Eight years, he would have won with against the same competition. You know, a, a, a bunch more, a bunch more Grand Slams. In, in today, in today's, if he oh, in today's it, today's John McEnroe, yes, yeah, today's John McEnroe. So I, so I mean, hold, I, Eric, I, I wish, I mean, we it's too long a horizon to make you know credible bets, but the way people talk about this guy, I, I just, the six or seven or eight seems like on the low end. I know that's crazy. We're supposed to be regressive and you know, all that stuff. So talk me off of that. Audi, come on, man. Audi's going to be your sober number here. Um, you're, no, I want I mean, numbers from everybody. I want point forecasts from everybody. Nobody yeah, leaves yeah. the show before you get a point. Problem is, of course, he's doing this at 19 and there doesn't seem to be anyone in the, the fat part of the twenties that, that can push him around. So, so much. Right. When, right. And this is the next three years that you wouldn't expect much out of a kid. He's a kid, right. But he's already won the U S open. So the the problem, of course, is that you got to regress hard to the baseline, which is what Eric essentially has done. Yeah. But I love the story. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to give you a point forecast. I'm going to give you one around eight or nine. Um, mm-hmm. 
But I think the confidence interval that is or prediction interval, I should be accurate with my statistical vocabulary, is uh, is pretty wide. Okay, reasonable. Just remind us what the record is. Those guys at the top, Djokovic and Nadal, what are they sitting on? 20s, all right. Yeah, well, uh, Djokovic, uh, sorry, Nadal has, I think, 22, Djokovic 21, Federer 20, Sampras 14. Those are the top. I like what Adi started with, though. He's like, look, we've talked about this lack of younger talent for a while. It's one of the reasons the big three have been able to run for as long as they have. And that lack of talent at that generation is going to benefit the next strong players, presumably. Yeah. So odd, odd goes with eight or something like that with a wide prediction interval around it. Shane. I mean, I'm certainly with him on that wide prediction interval, you know, yeah, I, could yeah, talk yeah, myself, yeah. Uh, I could talk myself we get a lot it. of different numbers, but I'm going to shrink even more. I, I, you know, I'm based, you know, based on, you know, one major championship where he, you know, probably did face the max, you know, had to, had to struggle the ma- maximally for, for an eventual cha- uh, champion. I'm not going to put him in that elite group yet. I'll, I'll put him at like five or six. Okay. Which is Eric. still obviously elite in a tennis sense. But yeah, right, right. Historically great discussion yet. Yep. And, and I'm with Shane. I, I can't yet put him in the elite set, partially also because of the conversation we just had earlier, which is, he had the most games played of any. And so he, I don't want to say he barely won. I don't make, he won the U.S. Open, but it wasn't that dominant a performance. I'm putting him at, I, I was going to say six and a half. So I'll go on, I'll go right in that number, <laughs> six, six to seven. All right. So I'll play prices right and go nine. So I get everything above. Adi. <laughs> <laughs> you get to go last. Um, all right, guys, let's talk a little bit of baseball. We've got a few minutes left and I'm sure there's something to talk about. First, the home run races that we've been watching uh, is judge going to is judge going to catch and is Pujols going to catch. What do we think? Well, judge uh, judge started off the week since we last met pretty well, but has has been a dry spell for the last five games. Um, considering the Yankees have uh, have matched with their own runs all of a sudden, um, so Judge is still I'm still hopeful. I expect it, but I wouldn't be surprised he doesn't make it. Still a long just way to, to be go. Clear, so, Adi, we're just to be clear, referring to the AL record. I mean, he's still on pace yes. to beat the AL record. Yes, he is on pace, but you know, home runs come in bunches, as we know. So uh, they got the Red Sox tonight. Hold on, we'll, what do you mean we'll home watch. runs come in bunches? Is that a, a random clustering, or is that because they? They actually hit little non-stationary streaks. Well, you know, so it's interesting. Um, it's probably difficult to tell the difference between what we're seeing and and uh, anything else. But you know, you do have you have opponents, you have parks. Those yeah, change, right? Right. Um, you know, the Yankees are at Fenway for the next two nights. That's just a great park for an Aaron Judge. So okay, okay, all right. So, but give us the numbers. Where is he? And what numbers do y'all think? Are- he's at fifty-five. Uh, he's got the Yankees have 21 games left to play. So even let's just say a one third pace, which is slightly less than he's been doing, that gets him to 62. Yeah. So that's why Shane said he's he's on a pace. Yeah, I mean single. his actual pace, I think I calculated out is like more like 64 and a half or something like that. It is because he, he hasn't played every game. But let's assume he plays every game, which isn't clear. But uh, yeah, I think he'll make it to I think he'll make it to 62. And that's Maris. No, Maris 61. 61. Uh, so that would be, so the, it, it, would well, be, it would be the new American league record. Okay. Got it. And, and I agree with Shane. We'll just get rid of American league. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, I'd have to forecast. I'd have to tell you, uh, I think his, his rate all season has been higher than what we'd expect to go forward, in which case I think it's going to be right on the cusp. I'm going to, I'd have to predict 60. Okay. Rooting for it, but I'd predict 60. 
Okay. Interesting. All right. Thanks for that help. Now on Pujols, if I remember correctly, he hit 697 the other night. So he needs three he, he more. He passed Alex the- Rodriguez, which is makes him, like, I think, the fourth highest now in, in fourth highest. baseball history. Yep. Is, yep. is there anybody else Incredible. to pass, or is it just getting to this round number of 700? Uh, no, he, Not yeah, unless babe, he wants babe, to play next year. He's got yeah, Ruth. Babe, Babe Ruth, 714. So he's not hitting okay. 17 more. No. Yeah, so he'd have to, he, uh, under his current plans to retire at the end of the season, he's shooting for 700 at best. Okay. But so, certainly it's a lot more realistic looking than it was like, you know, at the start of the season. I wouldn't have given him any chance to hit 700 at the start of the season. It's, it's incredible, his kind of renaissance. I mean, do we care about a round number like 700? It sounds fun. Yes. I mean, does he care? Yes. Does yes, the world do. care? The yeah. world does yes. care. Okay. Yeah. We want to get to yes. 700. Do we care All about right. 100 win teams? Yes. Yes, we yeah. care about 101 teams. We care about the guy. Do we care about a guy who gets to 299 wins, 2,999 hits? I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. These milestones matter. 700. Yes, if he okay. got, I mean, it's not going to matter really to his legacy because no. I mean, the guy is like you know, yeah, yeah, top 10 baseball player of all time anyway. But you know, I mean. I like round numbers. I don't know. All right. So in, in just the three minutes we have left, what is interesting? You So so stay your AL East biases and tell me what races are most interesting around 21 games left, man. That's a, that is the home stretch. What races are most interesting around the league? Well, I mean, so, yes. I, Sorry. I feel like Go the ahead, wild Shane. card is kind of locked up now. The playoff teams are basically locked in in the AL for lack of, you know, it's not nearly as, I, I mean, ordering can still change but that's basically it i think the most interesting kind of race is for at, at in the nl for the wild card where you've got the padres and the phillies and 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 you know the braves kind of in the driver's seat but the brewers are still kind of there so to the extent there. that there's sort of a playoff push i think it's going to be kind of you know the the braves phillies um brewers and padres all kind of fighting for three uh three four teams fighting for three spots and the answer okay. just to quickly to build on what Shane said, it matters because remember the, there's six teams make the playoffs. Now three division winners, three wild cards, the top two get a buy. The next two get home field for a three game series, best of three, all yeah. at home, all at home. So being three, like right now, the Rays are sitting there at four versus the blue Jays at six. There's a half game difference. Four versus six makes a huge difference. Yeah. Six plays mm-hmm. a division winner and six plays on the road. Four plays at home and plays five. So no, that's that you know, a great point. Yeah, to the extent that there's playoff or not drama, it's all in the NL. But seed, seeding in both leagues is very important, as Eric just pointed out. So there's all these to kind of pay changes. attention to at the team level. And I think Otani versus Judge for MVP is going to be a, a, a continuing interesting race. If if Judge breaks that record, I think he's going to get it. But Otani is the uh, in my mind the MVP. Let me just throw out one thing. Judge might even get the triple crown. He might not out of the question. Not out of the question. Otani <laughs> is a top pride five in that hitter and pitcher. So yeah, I mean, I don't understand. I don't understand how yeah. with all all the value he delivers on the mound yeah. on top of what he's doing at the plate. Yeah, I don't know the year that. Remember, let's remember the year that Ted Williams hit four oh six. He uh, didn't win the MVP because that was the year DiMaggio hit fifty six in a row. So anything could happen. I anything believe happen. Yeah, Judge could hit sixty and not be the MVP, and it would be a travesty, but it could happen. <laughs> <laughs> all by all, all objective. Well, yes. speaking of your biases, okay. In the last twenty seconds, where the Yankees stand in the seed in the seeding in the East or in the AL? They're pretty much. I don't say locked in, but as much as they're going to be the two seed in the East. 
Yeah, okay. barring so collapse, no drama. they still will get one no of those drama. five points. Yeah, man, they they collapse. It's a looking a little bit. It's certainly looking more dramatic than it was a month ago, but they're still going to get that by. Yeah, geez. Okay. All right. All right. Good fun, guys. Well, it's about to t- it's about time as we you know we get more NFL and college. We also turn to baseball postseason, so we'll be getting into one of the best months of the year. October probably is in competition for the best sports month of the year. That has been three quarters, gentlemen. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. After the break, you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. As you guys know, fourth quarter has become our interview segment during COVID. Uh, we have a very special interview this time around. We have our what's become an annual interview, a third annual interview with the Moneyball for Fire guys. I don't think they're going to be offended if we call them the Moneyball for Fire guys. We first discovered them, and it really was kind of a process of discovery for us two years ago. And it was a heavy fire season out there in 2020, northwest of the U.S. And these guys told us about what they're using, how they're using analytics to fight the fires out there and and what a big effort it's been over the last few years. And then we caught up with them again last year. We scooped the Wall Street Journal. We The Wall Street Journal, or maybe it was New York Times, big glossy coverage of these guys last year. We scooped them by a year, man. We scooped them by a year. And we're back for more. We're very happy to welcome back to the show Kit O'Connor and Matt Thompson. Kit is a research ecologist with the U.S. Forestry Service, Rocky Mountain Research Station, Human Dimensions Program. He's a member of the Wildfire Risk Management Science Team. He's also one of the analytics leads. And analytics leads, guys, in fire for the National Risk Management Association program through the Forest Service and Aviation Management. Matt is a research forester at the USDA Forest Service, where he works in their human dimensions program at the Rocky Mountain Research Station. Guys, great to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, everybody. Remind us where you are, because in the past, you've been in two different Rocky Mountain locations. Yeah, so I uh, originally was co-located with Kit in Missoula, Montana, but I am now in Fort Collins, Colorado, at the headquarters of the Rocky Mountain Research Station. Okay, and Kit, does that mean you're still up there in Missoula? I am. I'm still here in Missoula, down in the valley with uh, an AQI of 180 today, which is pretty terrible. Hold on. What's AQI? Air Air Quality Index. (laughs) What's the scale? Uh, anything over like 90 is not good. Uh, anything over 100 is like, don't do anything active outside. And when you get above 150, like, don't even look outside. Jeez. Okay. So is it smoke that has it so bad? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What's happened is um, we are in a, a, a smoke transport corridor here in Missoula. And so we're pulling smoke from Southern Idaho, the Oregon fires and Northern California. Oh my gosh. Okay. Can you just like re-engineer the quarter like you do a house? Just I want a quarter over there and not over here. Or are you stuck with the quarter that you got? Uh, this quarter is driven by a whole bunch of uh, amazing mountain ranges that when it's not smoky, I wouldn't trade for anything. Right, right, right. All right. Well, we want to hear from you, but maybe first give us context. When we first talked to you two years ago, it was one of the real bad years. It seems like all the years are bad now in a way that didn't used to be but how how has 2022 been so far what are we catching you in the middle of about it other than other than bad air quality 
Well, so that's a, it's interesting. Uh, this year started off in a really rough space um, with actually some prescribed fire that turned into huge fires. Actually, the largest mm-hmm. fire in New Mexico history uh, started really early season in April. Um, and then once uh, the monsoons hit in the southwest, it really slowed everything down. Uh, things finally stopped and it looked like things were really going to come out as a, as a pretty good year um, in terms of fire impacts. And now things have really picked up again just in the last uh, about month or so. Uh, but the good thing is that we are coming up on the end of fire season in some of these areas. We're starting to see moisture coming back in. So California, unfortunately, is going to continue burning, um, uh, at least in Northern California, where they haven't had those rains. Right. But Oregon hopefully is cranking down, and here in uh, the upper northern Rockies, we've been pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, let me ask you, since let's call it impact is obviously a multidimensional thing. You could measure in terms of live lost, dollars lost, acreage lost, air. I'm sure I'm, measure, I'm leaving out lots of things. How do you guys take this multidimensional outcome and say good year, bad year, when some things could be good, some things could be bad? How do you guys think about that? I think that's that's a great question, Eric. And uh, a lot of the metrics are in the what I would call the ecological domain. So we often report uh, a- area burned, which is a very um, let's call it uh, lacking uh, because it fails to have all of that context, like you just talked about. So another more on the ecological side, we'll talk about the severity of the burn, how much vegetation was consumed, how much mortality there was. One of the challenges we're seeing with climate change and increasing fire activity is the size of the patches that burn at high severity are growing. And that has all sorts of implications for regeneration of future forests. Mm. Uh, it has all sorts of implications for uh, really salient this year. So when you have large patches of uh, forests that burn at high severity, what can then happen is you have an extreme rainfall event. And so that can lead to increased probability of debris flows and mud slides and just erosion mm. that gets into the water. And so the event that Kit alluded to in New Mexico there were not only fatalities from from mudslides and debris flows that happened in the wake of the the monsoonal season, but you also now have communities, I think it's Las Vegas, New Mexico, has something on the order of less than a few weeks worth of water supply left because the sediment and other chemicals and materials got into their water supply and they don't have the treatment capability. So there's an article that that came out in, uh, I believe, Science Advances earlier this year that is projecting with climate change, we're gonna see on top of increased fire activity, increased extreme precipitation events. So mm-hmm. you're gonna have these, these kind of compound risks e- emerging. And so I know that's not exactly the question you posed, but it's been, it's been front and center on our mind because uh, from, the, from the hats that we wear, the, the US Forest Service, we were, we were established to help provide water supply to the country. And so insofar as we're gonna see more of these sorts of events here in Colorado, in 2020, that big fire year, we had the Cameron Peak and the East Troublesome, the largest fires in Colorado state history. This year, we've seen a lot of monsoonal uh, action up here in Colorado as well. We also had fatalities due to uh, rainfall events in the burned areas. Um, and so I, I think, yes, loss of life. Yes, impacts to water quality, in, in impairment to air quality, as Kit alluded to. Uh, it's incredibly multidimensional. And I think we're going to grapple with this notion of it, its compound nature as we move forward. What's this the, is such what, an important idea. We, I just, this idea of compound risk, we're going to, in my desire, we're going to have an entire show about this because it's so, I hadn't even thought about, as you're pointing out, if the ground is burned more, 
then there's more probability of mudslides. And there's also you have to try to put these fires out and then there could be more runoff of materials that affects the watershed. So, I mean, these are really fascinating topics to me. And, and, and you're right. In some sense, it's good that in some sense you guys are there to address all of these issues because it really requires, in my view, a comprehensive way of thinking about it. It's not just about the fire. It's about the fire, the rain, the runoff, all of that together. Well, let's remember the one of the chief things that these guys do is provide guidance for optimally fighting fires. And that's based on this kind of multidimensional objective that you're talking about, Eric. Kit. Yeah, and actually one additional dimension to that, there's the fighting of the fires and then there's the choosing of which fires are likely to give us basically that risk reduction for the future. And so okay. it's kind of to Matt's point, there's there have been a number of these large fires or even just high severity fires. They don't have to be very big to have these big runoff events. Whereas if we've seen fires like there was a fire in 2017 on the Tonto National Forest that was actively managed for kind of low severity, kind of these ecological benefits. But in the end, that also made it basically floodproof. Um, so when they got hit by these monsoon rains, there was enough intact vegetation that you end up with this big protective um, area of, of a watershed right near a city of 10,000 people in Globe, Arizona. Four years later, that fire was hit by a massive, one of what we consider to call a mega fire, a catastrophic fire. And everything around this burn footprint started putting off those uh, debris flows, but not within this area wow. that was treated wow. with, a, with a, a wildfire under good conditions. Well, this I was I was going to ask it, what levers do you have to tackle this compound risk of severe burn plus monsoon, and I, and so it sounds like you know again control burns like back to the back to the usual tools, but I just want to observe that we've had uh, probably the first year we talked with you guys for an hour, so we've had ninety minutes of conversation before this about this, and I don't think we ever talked about erosion and floods, at least not very high prominence. And now there's like yet another issue. Great. Yet another issue for us to navigate. But you guys, okay, so you're just to remind folks and kind of set ideas here, you're building maps and likely burns and what's going to be severe and what's not severe. And 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 with and so you know the regions that are need more management, need more attention. You know if they get hit, the challenge of fighting them, you also have tactical approaches for fighting them, given the maps, all of these are based on analytics. And it's all, it's in my sense is that it's just blown up in, you know, the couple of years before we talked to you first and that you've gained even more traction since then. Can you give us an update on how things have gone on this, in this battle? Um, the, the, the one you gave us an anecdote in our first conversation that is one of our favorite in eight and a half years on the show of selling analytics into firefighters and, and the, the guys who run these crews as using the, the, the three-point analogy from basketball. So from that to now, it sounds like you've continued to get traction. Can you give us a little bit of an update on what that looks like? I mean, so we, we follow this, by the way, we follow progress in all these sports, like what's going on in college football, what's going on in baseball, why is it different in basketball, what's going on in Premier League soccer? What is it with the U.S. forestry and firefighting? So I think that those are good questions for both of us. And I, I guess one of the most objective ways to answer that is we actually had an independent study uh, commissioned by the Southwest Ecological Restoration Institutes that specifically went out to fire incident command teams and asked, are you using this stuff? Um, if so, what are you using it for? And do you like it? And it was pretty... Um, 
pretty exciting for us to get those results back, uh, which just came out last month. And what we found was in the year 2021, uh, that's one of the first years that we really had all these kind of wall-to-wall analytics available to a lot of teams, even before they showed up on site. And what we saw was uh, as much as 87% of the team said, we want to use this stuff more. Mm-hmm. Um, and of the, uh, there's a, a whole kind of catalog of tools now, and every year we're adding new analytics. Um, what's exciting for our group is that the top six analytics, uh, four of the top six are from our group specifically, and the top two are from us directly. <laughs> Hold on. So tell us what the top two are. These are tools. These are analytics tools for firefighters to use. Is, do I have that right? And what would that's, that's absolutely right. So one is specifically an index, a spatial index of suppression difficulty. How hard is it to complete uh, fire management actions for any piece of ground? And it, and it looks at potential fire behavior. It looks at accessibility, um, kind of a whole series of metrics that can just be summarized down into a heat map that tells you where am I most likely to run into a hard time doing my job. Mm-hmm. Pete, I have to admit, given that Kit just said, this is one of those times where literally it's a heat map. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well said, Eric. <laughs> um, and then, yes. And then the second uh, tool is, is one that actually uh, I, I get to say, I, I came up with a brainchild, but it's really been improved upon by a lot of our collaborators. And that's something called the Potential Control Locations Atlas, which is basically a probability of success map. So it's not just where you can do your work, but where you're likely to successfully do your work or where you don't even need to do your work because the fire is going to stop on its own. So differentiate the first of those tools from the second force because it was a little quick. Yeah. So the first one is how a firefighter sizes up the landscape. What does their job look like for this piece of ground? And the second one is what does the machine learning tell us about where fires actually stop? What's the kind of the coherence of all of these different factors that either stop a fire or make it keep going? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Matt. Yeah, just one one quick thing to add to that, because they do share a lot of commonalities. But if you can imagine kind of like a, a two by two matrix, there's areas of low suppression difficulty and low probability of control and high suppression difficulty and high probability of control and the, the others exist. So there may be areas where the machine learning model says, hey, there's a high probability of control here. But the suppression difficulty could be exceedingly high because it's really rugged terrain uh, that's really limited access. And so you would have to ask yourself that question, is it worth the exposure to the other operational hazards to send people in there, even though their probability of control is high? So they kind of use these things in tandem. Got it. Well, listen, man, that, that, that kind of take up is remarkable. And it feels like it's really taken up in just the last few years, especially. Um, the modeling itself, I'm sure y'all are forever improving this and working on it. One of the things I worry about ever since we've had our first conversation, I worry about the challenges you face as temperatures keep going up. And in one of our conversations, you talked about the difficulty of modeling what's going to happen um, when you're you're basing those models on history, of course, but you don't have history of temps and prolonged, prolonged periods of high temperatures that we have now. Am I right to worry about that? And have you, have you come up with tools for, navigating that where, where are you am i right this kind of you know beyond the support problem of the model where does that sit today so that has been um definitely a, a big concern of mine and actually that came out as another one of these survey results is that teams like to use this stuff when uncertainty goes up when they feel like um the things are shifting 
and they don't have familiarity with what they can expect coming in the next few days, then they turn to these analytics. Um, but you are exactly right that some of these analytics actually do okay with kind of adjusting to new conditions on the ground because they're a real-time update. The suppression difficulty index looks at fire behavior modeling. And if you're looking at extreme fire conditions, then your SDI goes way up. It's really difficult to engage the fire. That, that holds well. The problem with machine learning is it needs to learn from something. Mm -hmm. And our current implementation of it, um, it's using the past. So it's current to last year. And so if this year is so above and beyond anything that's been seen in the past, we're not accounting for that. Mm -hmm. Although um, I think at our, at our last episode, one of the things I mentioned is what we're trying to do now is move our time steps so that we are looking at every single day on a fire. And you can usually find some number of analogs on past fires that show up looking just like what you're going to be seeing today or in the, in the future. So instead of looking at averages, now we're looking at individual cases. Oh, and that's how you start to adapt and say, you know what, this fire, we're going to have 15 of these extreme days. In the past, we've never seen more than five. But okay. if we're building our model off just those five going back, you know, every time that shows up, that actually gives us a pretty good envelope of, of understanding what we're up against. Okay. Okay. I was just going to ask you guys, um, uh, Kate's question made me think about, is there the opportunity for, I don't literally mean you guys are going to set fires, but I mean, let's call it controlled fires to run experiments to actually collect data so that you can actually, if you see the way the X's in the machine learning model are going and you want information about X, in marketing, my home field, it's easy. We just run an experiment, but no one's losing lives. I'm not burning ground. I'm just spending a little bit of money. So how do you guys think about that? I, I think that's a, that's a great question. And yes, the, the answer is yes, they do that. And they do that in a variety of contexts. So the most controlled would be in you know, in laboratory experiments where they now have, you know, wind tunnels and they can change the nature and composition and density of the fuels and they can change the slope and, and they can manage all that. And that really improves the underlying physics. And, you know, they use a lot of computational fluid dynamics, but in Utah, as a matter of fact, I was just in Utah working with some colleagues, they're going down there now to do fine scale LIDAR mapping of the fuel complex in advance of a controlled crown fire burn. So these are in remote places where they, you know, have the right environmental conditions and low values at risk to do exactly what you're talking about. They're going to have unmanned aerial systems doing, you know, tracking of infrared imagery. And that's really upping the ante in terms of the type of high resolution spectral infrared spatial and temporal resolution on these things. And, you know, to, to, to the earlier question, there's just a Matt, whole Matt, hold lot. On, of hold on for one second yep. on that. I just want to, I just saw, well, y'all must know this, the, was it the New York Times with a piece last week, something very recently on exactly this, where scientists were going out and setting their instruments in advance of a controlled fire to learn even more? Why not? We know what's going to burn. Why not go out and collect all the data ahead of time? To So as modelers, this is just hugely advantageous for you. And Matt, Kit, you were trying to jump in here with some kind of follow up on this. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to cut Matt off. The one thing I would say, though, too, is along with these, uh, these kind of set experiments, we're kind of doing these natural experiments. We're partnering with NASA and with other groups to actually give us the best possible observations of historical events. So we go back and we, there's concurrent satellite data that line up daily with fire progression going back 20 years. And so we're actually starting to tease out things like fire radiative power 
and like the, the rate of spread. And then underneath that, we can look at things like, well, what did that kind of modeled fuel complex look like? So we're actually starting to use a bunch of synthetic variables to recreate what was actually happening in real time on a lot of these fires. That's amazing and very cool. It raises the question of where your resources are coming from. We'll get to that in a second. I think that's a mad question, but Matt, I cut you off a second ago. So you were going to go on about the, about the control fires or the in- instrumentation there. No, just all of this is to say that there's uh, dozens of uh, people who are far, far smarter than myself who are really, uh, you know, bringing really computationally intensive work in physics to, to all of this. And so, you know, insofar as those models will, will come to scale soon, they will then feed into the models that, that Kit and I developed that are kind of mm-hmm. intended more for tactical and strategic use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, can you talk about the how policies have changed in, in light of you know, one, the worsening conditions and this seemingly increasing risk, especially in the West, but also your advances in technology and our understanding. What is it added up to for for what we're seeing in policy? You know, I think last time we talked, there was pending legislation that kind of touched on some of the work that, that our group does. And, and so maybe I'll kind of keep it a little bit narrow to that because there's been a lot. Uh, there was the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. There was the Inflation Reduction Act. There's other kind of acts of Congress pending. Uh, Specifically in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, they put $100 million towards uh, workshops that do the exact sort of of planning with these analytics that Kit talked about also being used in real time. So there's this nice convergence of pre-fire cross-boundary planning that leverages the exact bundle uh, or Kit referred to it as a catalog of, of analytics to kind of mm-hmm. set the stage for for you know more risk informed response when that happens. At the same time, there was half a billion dollars that was directed for fuels management along these potential control locations. So the very model that Kit referred to that he built that says where on the landscape do you have your best shot at at controlling a fire? We're now de- devoting. Uh, half a billion dollars to manage fuels along those kind of strategic systems of, of breaks that, that afford greater opportunities for control. They also afford uh, opportunities for leverage. That is to say, if you have hardened boundaries, you can then do more controlled burning. And then you can leverage that to do kind of more uh, you know, risk reduction and ecosystem benefit fires instead of having to respond to every fire as, as if it's an emergency. So there's the, the legislative advances. And then internally to the Forest Service, you know, the Matt, agency- can I, can, I, can I stop you real quickly there? You said manage resources. I thought that that was a euphemism for control burns, but I don't think so because you came back and said something else later. About <laughs> yeah, the key distinction here, Cade, is um, whether we set the fire or whether nature set the fire for us. So if there is a controlled burn that we're going to set, there's a lot of um, environmental regulation and planning and assessment that goes into it. Uh, Similarly, for how we respond to wildfire, there's a lot of assessment and planning that goes into it. But when lightning strikes, it's a different kind of management and regulatory context than when we're the ones who start the fire. (laughs) Okay. I think you're saying that sometimes nature cooperates with you it's not just that they're burning fires that are, are always a problem sometimes you're like well we could use a little burn over here and it'd be a lot easier if lightning just hit right here as opposed to my having to put in a form to run one of these dang things Kit. and real quickly to that point uh, we talk about kind of the pace and scale needed for adaptation to things like climate change and that means we're going to have to leverage these natural ignitions in order in the right places at the right time in order to catch up on the fire deficit 
Well, now this is fascinating because this, I mean, one of the great challenges in life is to prepare yourself for chance. And like, you, you can't control nature, but you could position yourself to take advantage of it when it cooperates with you. That's exactly what you're talking about, right? You're saying we want to understand where these opportunities are so that when and if lightning strikes, we respond appropriately. Like you might not want to put, a, people rush out to put the fire and you guys out there, no, 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 no. We're not going to put a fire out. If lightning happens to strike right here, that's fascinating. That, that was one of the core reasons for embarking on this path, however many years ago, is that exact, we need kind of systemic change in the way we think about and plan for fire. Not mm-hmm. every lightning strike um, is an emergency that requires us to rapidly put it out. In fact, it might be something we can capitalize on. And you talk to mm-hmm. a lot of fire ecologists and they say, that's exactly what you should be doing. The fire that Kit referred to in 2017 was exactly that. It was a lightning strike in an area that they had done the due diligence in assessing the risks, assessing the benefits, planning for where they could control the fire, and they got they got good outcomes out of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So, well, Kit, I cut you. I mean, Matt, I cut you off a moment ago. You want to finish where you were on that? You were about to shift to internal in some way. Yeah. Just um, in addition to the pretty dramatic investments from from Congress, there's been a lot of internal change and, and, and movement and support of the sort of tools that, that Kit and I have been talking about. So every year, the chief of the Forest Service, you know, in effect, our CEO puts out a letter of intent for wildfire. And he called out some of these tools by name and is encouraging the field to use them. Uh, around the same time, the Forest Service released very ambitious what they call the wildfire crisis strategy. It kind of acknowledges the changing nature of climate and human development and the need to really rethink how we approach the problem. In its implementation plan, its 10-year implementation plan, it also called out by name and directed the field to use a lot of these tools. And then more recently, in response to those escape prescribed burns in New Mexico that Kit referred to, they did a a 90-day review and kind of reviewed how we need to change some certain best practices or how we need to evolve and adapt to new best practices. And and in that document that was just released this week, unbeknownst to us, uh, those tools were called out again. So now there's this kind of big push for institutionalizing and adopting these tools as kind of one component of a broader set of best practices, not only for what you do when smoke is in the air, but how you plan and prepare for so that you're responding in kind of a more deliberative and risk-informed way. Well, that's fantastic and encouraging. Uh, what do you, what do you guys, is any of that like stressful to you? It's like how, if, if everybody wants these tools, they want more of them. Now the big boss is lauding you. Do you have the resources you need? Like what's the margin that is most important, Kit? So that's a really good question. And actually we've had amazing support from kind of our, the, the, the purse string holders, not just through Congress, but actually through the Forest Service itself. And so uh, we kind of tried to figure out what these pipelines could look like for scaling up to make these national, to make them functional and, and useful for, for everybody who wants them. Um, and it was just last year that for the first time we basically put numbers on that. And now some of that money is, is actually out the door and we are, we have a ton of collaborators who are producing for us, um, and not relying on us anymore. So that's, that's amazing. Um, one other thing I wanted to, to kind of tie back into that Matt mentioned, um, with kind of some of these analytics is we've really talked about in the the fire response phase, how these analytics are helping fire managers make decisions. But these fire, these analytics are also incredibly useful for engaging stakeholders before the fire to okay. get them to look at the management landscape, to look at how hard it would be to, to complete you know, suppression actions in this area. Don't yeah. put people there. 
um, let's figure out a better way to manage an ignition in this place. And so we're, what we're doing is we're seeing these analytics actually promote buy-in to change strategies before there's ever even smoke in the air. So unpack, uh, this is profound because this is something that happens in lots of other places, but why is it that these tools are effective when a lot of people have known there were risks before, but they weren't successful? Why is it that this makes the rhetoric more effective, these tools? So my sense is it's visual and it's science-based and um, it's transparent. We can show them how we did it and why we did it and the whole process behind it. And it, uh, it's objective. Um, mm-hmm. it's, this, is, this is what we know about the landscape. And a huge part of it too is we don't uh, constrain our analyses to the ownership boundaries. Uh, we, if we have data across an entire region, we use it all. And so okay. we'll draw our lines in and say, look, here's where the Forest Service ends and you're li- like, you begin. Yeah. Um, but fire doesn't care. Um, and so that's a really important conversation to have. Super interesting. Um, guys, uh, lo- love the work, as you know, and we love getting some time with you. Appreciate your making time for us in the middle of a busy season. We're always happy to hear from you. We wish you the best with the work that you're doing. Thanks. Thank Absolutely. You. Matt Thompson, Kit O'Connor. Kit is research ecologist with the U.S. Forestry Service. Matt Thompson is a research forester at the USDA Forest Service. Um, our third time to talk with them over the last three Septembers. Always a pleasure. That is Q4. That is our show. That is two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. For my co-host here with me on this last quarter, Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow for our missing co-host who was here for most of the show, Adi Weiner for the boss man, Matty Dats with the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Thanks to those guys for making this thing happen. Thanks to you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.